Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Welcome to Lighthouse. We are so glad that you're with us today. Uh, My name is Larry Sewell. I'm one of the elders here at the house. I get to work with Fritz and Don and Ben and and Marty. It's a great group of guys. And uh, whether you're joining us here in the house or whether you're online uh, joining us on the live stream, uh, uh, we just want to make sure you feel welcome this morning. We're glad you're here. Uh, We are in the week six of a seven-part series called Hope United. And we're working through the book of 1 Peter. Now, a little bit out of order. We're going to talk about chapter 5 this week. And then next week, we'll be finishing uh, this series talking about chapter 4. So we'll be in chapter 5 of Peter this week. Now, Peter has been talking about suffering. He's been talking about trials in our lives. But he's talking about a specific kind of trials. He's not talking about general suffering. He's talking about pushback specifically because we're Christians people pushing back against the truth that we know in our lives. Now, this kind of pushback, Peter tells us, is normal. People in our world, in our culture, are going to push back against the truth. Now, in the last uh, few weeks, we've been talking about this from lots of different angles and how that affects every relationship in our life. Uh, In chapter 5, Peter is going to talk about uh, how this uh, plays itself out in the church as a whole. Okay, and he's going to give us some principles, some themes, maybe you could say, about how to think about trials from the standpoint of the church as a whole. Now, a couple of the common themes that we've seen through the first four chapters of the book of, or first three chapters of the book of Peter, is the first is this, that, that suffering and trials in our life, because of our faith, they actually expose the nature and the quality of our faith. Not only do they expose our faith, uh, but they're actually, they actually have the ability to increase our faith. It's like your mom when she tells you, this may not feel very good, but it's good for you. It's like that, you know? Trials actually expose and nurture our faith. It helps us remember that this life is temporary and that faith and building our faith is something that is eternal, Another theme that we've seen is that the trials in our life and our response to those trials is actually a doorway to evangelism for other people. People will see the hope we have and how we respond to trials, which might be very different than how they respond, and it causes folks to ask questions, giving us the opportunity to share our hope in a gentle and in a respectful way with people who are far away from God. And the the other theme that I see all the way through Peter is that our salvation came actually through suffering, through the suffering of Jesus. God uses virtually everything that happens in our lives for our good, because he is a good God. Uh, This includes the difficult times in our lives. He uses all of that to build our faith into something eternal. Now, these are our general themes that we've seen uh, through the book of 1 Peter, through the first three chapters. And today we're going to jump into chapter 5 and kind of push the agenda forward and see what has, Peter has to say there. Um, before we do that, let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your promises in the Scripture. 
We, we are grateful for the truth of the Scripture that your Holy Spirit resides in us, that you uh, give us a new way to think, uh, a new context to live, that you transform our lives by the power of your Word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we pray that you would help us understand your promises, that you give us clarity of mind and thought and heart, and that as we dive into First Peter chapter 5 today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us that you'd open our minds and our hearts, uh, that we would see you in the pages of Scripture. I pray all this through Jesus. Amen. First Peter chapter 5. I'd like to read the whole chapter. So take just a minute. We'll just work all the way through that, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the key themes in this, uh, in this chapter. This is what Peter says, First Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And now, a word to you who are elders in the church. I too am an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in the glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, watch over, um, uh, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries to God, for he cares for you. He cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering as you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Jesus Christ. And so after, after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. He will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forevermore. Amen. I've written this and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and to assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon seeks, uh, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ Jesus. So today I'd like to work down through this passage of chapter 5 and look at the key themes. The first of those themes is uh, the leadership uh, of the church, the elder leadership of the church. Then we'll talk about humility as the threshold into the very presence of God. Then we'll talk about the reality of spiritual battle. And then we'll talk about understanding our trials that they are part of God's uh, grace for each of us. So the first theme is leadership within the church. Now, you might be aware, uh, maybe not, but this is an elder-led church. 
an elder-led church. Now, Pastor Fritz is one of the elders, and then uh, Don and Ben and Marty and myself, we serve together, and we're leading currently both Bluffton and Lighthouse together. Now, Pastor Fritz takes a leadership role within the church. He's the primary leader okay, of the elders, and also he leads all the pastors and the staff directly. Now, Ben leads the charge down in Bluffton, so there's clear lines of who's supposed to be doing what. You might be aware that elders in the Old Testament and the elders of the people in Jesus' day had a terrible reputation. Terrible reputation. In fact, uh, they often led people away from God instead of toward God. And I think that's why in the New Testament, the writers double down on the role of elders within the church so that the people in the church, everyone knows how this is supposed to work and that it can work well. All the way through the book of Acts and in Timothy and Titus, all through the Bible, we see this idea of a multiple elder church. So it's not one person that's kind of on his own, but rather serving in community. In fact, one of our core values here at Lighthouse is that we serve together as a team. Nobody is on their own. Nobody has to twist in the wind when bad things happen all by themselves. This is a biblical value to serve together in team. Now, the Apostle Paul gives really clear criteria for how elders are to be chosen. And you can read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 if you, you're interested in that topic. But there's a warning also in chapter 5. And the warning is this. Be really, really careful how you pick leaders in your church because they can lead you astray. Now, an elder has to have the capacity to teach to be able to lead with truth. That's another core value that we have here at Lighthouse, to lead with the teaching of Scripture. Now, we also have deacons at the church, which are essential to the church functioning. We need elders. We need deacons. We need ministry leaders. We need pastors. We need family group leaders. We need virtually the entire body of Christ working together if this church is to do what God has called us to do. It's all of us together that form the church. Know this. God has blessed Pastor Fritz in a remarkable way. It's fun to work with him. He's a person who, who truly loves the Scripture. He truly prays. He talks to God in your behalf. He cares deeply about people. And he cares deeply about people who are not yet believers. That's who he is. I've gotten to know him well enough to know uh, he's a transparent guy, and that's what he cares about deeply. Elders aren't competitors with each other or with anybody else. They're, they're actually partners in the ministry for the good of the church. I don't think a week goes by that I don't learn something about the character of God from Pastor Fritz. And that's the kind of elder, that's the kind of pastor we need that we, that we really want to know. But, but get this, this is something that's essential for us to know. The role of pastors and teachers in the church is not necessarily to do all the work of ministry. Instead, their role is to equip the people of the church to do the work of the ministry. That's an important distinction. These aren't the guys that do it all. These are the guys that equip us as a church to do what God has called us to do. You could say it this way, there are no bleacher seats. There are no cheap seats watching what's going on down there. This is us as a church doing what God has called us to do. 
So in the first part of chapter 5 in 1 Peter, he's laying this out to a church that is experiencing trials. They're experiencing suffering. And he's saying this, hey, um, together, come together under your leadership and, and face this stuff uh, head on. Let's do this together. Now, he gets into some specifics about elders. For instance, they are to serve willingly, not for something that they're going to get out of it. Uh, elders are to use their gifts and teaching and leadership, those kind of things, uh, hospitality, whatever gifts God has granted for the good of the church. You might know this, but roughly half of our congregation is involved specifically in some kind of service here at the church. Half. People involved in all kinds of different ministries. And, you know, without that, we don't function as a church. This is us serving together. We know there are seasons where, where some people have to be less involved. We get that. But generally speaking, people step right into ministry here at church, and there's room for everyone. Peter is tearing down the power model. You have to see that. He says this, uh, don't lord it over the people, but instead teach them by example. That's the tradition of the kind of leadership that Jesus displayed. It's, uh, it's team leadership. It's, it's working together. Um, think about shepherds in the old days. You know, shepherds, they were out in the field. These weren't status positions. These weren't people in corner offices with suits and ties. These were people with the sheep that took care of people. That's what the shepherds in the Old Testament and the New Testament were. And that's the description of leadership here, shepherding the church, not something else. You don't find like an American business model. You don't find like a political model. You don't find any of that in the Bible. What you find is servant leadership instead. In fact, I would say this. There is room, zero room for ego in leadership at the church. There's none. This is all about partnership in serving God to the best of our ability. You can think back to Philippians 2, where Jesus came to this world as a servant to serve us. He died for our sins. That's the model of leadership, people who serve. It's complete submission that Jesus showed to the Father. That's the model. I always marvel when I read John chapter 13. Actually, the whole gospel of John, it's so incredible what, what is said there to us. Um, but Jesus has just finished talking to the people. And he's explained that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. He's claiming, I am God in the flesh. All authority flows to Jesus. He's the one who, who created. He's the one who sustains the universe. He has all authority. Okay? He just finished explaining this. And this is what happens right after that in John chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. He got up from the meal... He took off his outer clothing, his coat. He wrapped the towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's Jesus displaying all authority, serving others. And that's the model of servant leadership for elders in the church. Now, Peter goes on and he speaks to younger believers and he says, you know, um, how about willingly accept the leadership of those who are older than you in the church, those who are leading? This isn't about manipulation. It's not about power. It's not about positioning. But instead, as a church, say, hey, how about if we willingly accept leadership and we all move together? 
that's kind of the model that we see in the scripture. There is room at Lighthouse, however, for more elders to step up. We have room for elders now. Now, this flows right into the second theme that Peter covers in chapter 5. And this is the second theme, that humility, humility, biblical humility actually, is the threshold into the very presence of God. Humility is the threshold into the presence of God. You know, pride goes before every sin. If there's any sin that ever goes on, pride is always ahead of that thing, right? Pride encourages me to dispense with what God has said and think I can do it better on my own, make my own choices as opposed to doing what God has clearly communicated in the scriptures. God has told us what's right and wrong. He's told us uh, about his character. It's all through the scriptures. Pride says, you know, I don't really need that. I can do it better on my own. Jesus didn't lead this way. He led in submission to the will of the Father. Peter is pulling back the curtain here, and he's, he's letting us look directly into the character of God himself when he says this, God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't think Peter is suggesting that Christians should be weak-kneed in pushovers. I don't think that at all. In fact, um, strength of character is an attribute of people who have strong faith. When he says things like, prepare your mind for action, he's not talking about people who are weak-kneed. Okay? Humility is not weakness any more than pride is strength. That's a completely wrong criteria to think about. I think what Peter is talking about here is this kind of crystal clear understanding of who God is and recognition of God in our lives, the God who has revealed himself in the Scripture. Not some substitute God we make up in our minds, but the God who is. He has revealed himself to us, and uh, pride makes us act on our own thoughts as opposed to humility that lets us acknowledge God for who he is. Humility shifts our reference point, a reference point from kind of me making my decisions and me worshiping me as God of my life, and instead worshiping Christ as Lord of my life. That's the shift in reference point that we see here. It's no longer me seeing myself as independent from God, but instead me putting myself under the authority of God. That's what humility does for us. It's not that we think less of ourselves if we're humble. It's that we think of ourselves less. Our reference point has changed. It's not about me tearing myself down. If I do that, I've completely missed the, the idea that I'm created in God's image with great value. Every person in this room has that image of God in them, and they have that value in them. Think about this. God gave his son for us. So the notion that we're not worth much or we should tear ourselves down, that's completely inconsistent with Scripture. And humility doesn't ask us to tear ourselves down at all. Instead, humility is choosing to worship Christ as Lord of my life. It's this. It's saying, God is God and I am not. It's shifting the reference point for life or for, for our lives. You know, there are two different errors that are opposing. One is pride. 
you know, me putting myself on the pedestal of self-worship. The other is this self-degradation, tearing myself down. Either one of those are false ideas. Humility lets me see myself correctly, lets me see myself in the light of who God is and how he has created me in his image. And as I see myself correctly as a child of God, it puts me in position to serve him with the gifts he's given me. It's a whole different way of thinking. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. When you worship Christ as Lord of your life, it's no longer possible for you to worship yourself as Lord of your own life. It's hard to come with our own accomplishments and our talents in front of God and think he's going to be impressed, right? We moved from the center, and we've put Christ in the center uh, instead. And, and that gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to use the gifts that God has given us uh, to serve him. When choosing pastors and elders, you know, people, leadership, this is the criteria we use. Has this person figured it out? to worship Christ as Lord of their life? Have they moved off the throne and put God there instead? Sin is the opposite of worshiping Christ as Lord of your life. Sin is worshiping myself as the director of my life. It's the opposite of what Peter is talking about here. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, they wanted to make their own decisions about what's right and what's wrong. And, and sin entered the world, the disaster of sin, because of disobedience to God. Peter is saying something very, very succinctly, something very, very clearly in just two lines. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is something we see in Genesis we, we see it all the way through the prophets. We see it all the way in the New Testament. It's everywhere in the scripture. God resists the proud. You could say it this way. That is his character. Peter's pulled back the curtain, allowing us to look at the very character of God himself. That is who he is. Hear this. God is opposed to the proud, to those who would be self-directed in their life. God is against people who live that way. He doesn't conform himself to our preferences. He has revealed himself in the scriptures, and we conform ourselves to God, our creator. You know, when you come to Christ for salvation, you don't come with a resume of all the good things you've done and hope you've been good enough for God to accept you. That's not how it works. You come to Christ recognizing in humility, that we need his forgiveness. We come just as we are, and God saves us because he's good. He takes into account what Jesus has done on our behalf for forgiveness, and and that is how we gain acceptance by God, not because of what we've done. So think about this for a minute. Strong leaders who are self-assured, you know, they got an agenda and they're moving. There's a pretty good chance They're actually doing things that are opposed to God himself because God resists the proud. The elders of the people and the gospels, they were the religious leaders of the day and they pushed back against Jesus. They pushed back against the gospel. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So hear the other side of that. Yeah, he resists the proud, but he gives grace 
to the humble. You know, when we come to God in humility, recognizing that God is God, he is there for us. You know, God hears the prayers of honest people seeking him. He hears those prayers. He understands when we've reached the end of ourselves. He knows that, and he accepts us into his presence when we come in humility. Humility is actually the threshold. It's the doorway into the very presence of God. That's his character. That's how we come to God in recognition of who he is. There is no other door. Right after talking about pride and humility, Peter says this. He says, give all of your cares and worries to God because he cares for you. When you walk with God in humility, you can do that. I look at that verse and say, what's Peter doing here? What's he talking about? Right in the middle of this, this discussion about pride and humility, he says, give your cares to God because he cares for you. Well, perhaps he's showing us this reality that, that humility is actually the key to trust. And when we recognize who God is and we come to him in humility, we can bring all of our cares to him because he cares for us. He's just letting us know how it works. Complete dependence on God, moving away from self-dependence and self-leadership, leaning into trust, letting God be the leader of our lives. It's humility that, that pleases God. That's the threshold to his very presence. This is the intersection of honest prayer. See, honest prayer says this, God, I need you in my life. I need you for everything. That's what honest prayer is. It's talking to God in truth. God gives grace to the humble. He gives peace in the conflict. He gives his presence to those who walk with him. And this is the stuff that makes not yet believers see our lives and how we respond to trials that causes them to ask the questions that allows us to talk about our hope in Christ and gentleness and meekness. Yeah, when we walk with God, that's, that's different than the way this world works with all of its stress and conflict. We're walking with God, and that gives us the opportunity when people ask the question to share hope. The verse from last week, I love this verse. Worship Christ as Lord of your life. And then if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it and do that in gentleness and in respect. Now, we've talked about leadership. We've talked about biblical humility as the threshold to the presence of God. And now uh, Peter is going to move forward into a really important theme for us to hear. He's going to talk about the reality of spiritual battle. We need to understand the reality. Satan is described by Peter as our great enemy, somebody who wants to devour us and destroy all that is good. That is who Satan is. That is his, his character. He doesn't say be strong and read self-help books and try the best you can. He doesn't say that. He says, be strong in your faith. That's what he's talking about. There's lots of parallels between the writings of Peter and the writings of Paul in the New Testament. You see those everywhere as you read these guys, right? And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking about the armor of God. And he tells us this, put on truth, 
put on righteousness, put on peace, put on faith, put on salvation, and wrap that whole thing in prayer. That's how we defeat Satan in our lives. We defeat Satan in our lives by walking with God, by walking in faith. Sometimes people think of spiritual battle and they think it's something spooky. You know, it's like something really dark and there's smoke in the room, something crazy. Let me give you some examples of what spiritual battle might look like. Okay, so let's say you're sitting at work or you're sitting at home and you have a really, really angry thought and you want to act out. And it crosses your mind. That's not really the way you should act. Okay, and you decide right then and there that you're going to put that to bed. You're going to pray. You're going to nail that thing to the cross and you're going to treat a person who doesn't deserve it with respect anyway. That is spiritual battle. You've made a decision that you're going to walk with Christ instead of doing what your natural inclination may be, what my natural inclination would, 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 would make me do, right? You're not going to follow that anymore. You're going to follow something else, something higher. Or maybe it's this. You're at work, and an associate that you work with who has made fun of your faith and thinks you're stupid because you're a Christian, they come to work and their kid has a real serious problem and they don't know what to do. And they want to talk to someone who has hope and knows something that can help them, right? And they want to talk to you. And in your mind, it crosses, you know, you can put them in their place because they've mistreated you. Or you can stop and say, you know what, I'm going to talk with this person, and maybe you're praying in the back of your mind as you share the hope of Christ with them, and you, maybe, maybe you help them with whatever their issue is with their child, right? And you decide you're going to walk that way instead of the natural inclination to push back. That's a spiritual battle going on inside your head. Are you going to follow Christ, or are you going to do whatever you want? You know, what are you going to do? Um, maybe it's for a person that says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to jump off of social media. Instead, I'm going to fill my mind with what God has said. And that's a spiritual battle right there, saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into Scripture. I'm going to let God speak to me instead of letting the, the world and everything out there and all the reels I can watch speak to me. I'm going to let God speak to me through His Word. Those are all spiritual battles. It's not some spooky thing in a dark room. This is daily life as we struggle with ourselves to align our hearts with God. This is something we do. We talk a lot about uh, Scripture and prayer and doing that in community at Lighthouse. And I think all that is completely appropriate. That's what we should be talking about. But I'd like to maybe expose something else uh, that we can add on to that, maybe a perspective that will help us. I was reading ahead into Second uh, Peter and listening there to what, what Peter is saying, kind of getting a, a bigger view of what Peter's view of everything is. I'd like to read uh, from 2 Peter chapter 1, just the first uh, couple verses there, beginning at verse 3. It says this, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We received all of this by coming to know him. And the one who called us to himself by means of his glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence... He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable us to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption that's caused by human desires. In view of this, he says, make every effort to respond to the promises of God. 
Think about the promises of God that we've seen in the book of 1 Peter so far. In chapter 1, we read that we are uh, born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. It's not just after we leave this world that that hope matters. We are born again to a living hope. This is something that guides our lives today. Another promise. You have an eternal inheritance that cannot be touched by anything in this temporary world. You have an eternal inheritance, something that's secure. Christians will be with God forever. You can go to the end of the book of Revelation and see how it all ends. It's all right there for us to read. In chapter 1, it also says this, you have a new life, a new life, a new identity. It's based on the eternal living word of God. You don't have to go back to the way things were before. I was talking to somebody just today about that. You know, we, we hold on to the things that we had before, and we're afraid to let those things go, not recognizing what God has in store for us. Yeah, it's an eternal hope. We let go of the old, and we lean into the new life that we have in Christ. Here's another one. You are God's very own possession. What Peter is saying is we are family. You know, we are part of God's family. He has adopted us into his family. He's our father. He's called us uh, by his kindness to share his eternal glory by means of Jesus Christ. It says that in chapter 5. I don't even know how to get my head around that. How can we share the eternal glory of Jesus himself? And yet, that's what Peter says God has in store for every Christian. Those are promises that are enormous promises that God has given to virtually every Christian by virtue of being a Christ follower. It's not something you get later. It's something that God gives you at the moment you believe. What Peter is saying is this. You want to win the spiritual battle in your life, the spiritual battles in your life that happen every day? You want to win? You want to get ahead of those things? He's suggesting this. Let the promises of God sink deeply into your soul. Meditate on those things. Understand them. Let God transform your thinking by the promises of God. By doing that, he actually is saying we will share the same divine nature that Jesus has. That's what Peter's saying. I didn't make that up. It'll actually transform us at the heart level. In chapter 3, I talked last week about confession and repentance in prayer. And I think all of those things are important. We have, to, we have to take the sin and we have to definitively move away from that in our lives by confession and repentance and prayer. Here, Peter is saying, yeah, and fill your heart with something else. Fill your heart with the promises of God. Yeah, let that happen. Let those things sink into your soul. Let God just change you from the inside. Let him transform your life by the, fruit, or by the uh, truth of Scripture. He's saying this, let the eternal reality of Christ smack you upside the head. That's what he's saying. Let the eternal reality of what's true in Jesus, get a hold of your heart, get a hold of every part of you. Let God transform you by his spirit. The spiritual battle is real. And the tendency to want to hold on to the old is very real. That's why Peter says, hey, don't go back to the old. Reach forward to the new. Give yourself to Christ. 
Let him be the Lord of your life. Winning the spiritual battle happens when we increase our faith. It's kind of weird, but the trials in our life, in chapter 1, Peter says, are actually capable of increasing faith in our life. It's a plan of God that we would become full of faith. Spiritual battle is real, and we should think clearly about walking in faith as a pushback against that spiritual battle. These trials expose our faith, and they build our faith. It's a different way of looking at trials, sort of running from them, recognizing that everything in our lives is used by God to transform us. He's got a plan. The last theme I'll just spend a moment with, kind of toward the end of chapter 5, is that the trials in our lives do not catch God by surprise. It's not like he's surprised or that we should be surprised either, because these trials in our life uh, are something that God knows about. He ends the chapter by uh, reassuring us that these trials um, that we're experiencing, they're part of God's grace in our lives. In fact, that's his purpose in writing, to expose to us, to tell us that these trials are not a mistake. And trying to avoid them, it's a pitch in the dirt. You can't avoid them anyway, and that's not God's plan. They refine our faith. They expose our faith. They help us with our faith. They help us stand firm against the wiles of the devil. They're not a strange event. They're not, they're not, they're not something that we can avoid anyway. Instead, trials make us partners with Christ in his life. They make us, they make us partners with Christ in his suffering. And there's a purpose to the trials that come in our life. It was through suffering that Christ brought us salvation. Don't feel alone. Don't feel dejected. Don't feel like it's a mistake. God is building your faith. Yeah, it's normal. The family of believers across the world is experiencing the same kind of trials that we try, that we're experiencing. When we walk with Christ, yeah, the world's going to push back. The world lives in false ideas, and, and we're walking in truth. It's going to push back. We've talked about elder leadership and the role of each person in the church. Yeah, we're together in this thing. We're all, we all have trials in our life. We experience all of that. Humility and recognizing that God is God and he's sovereign, that's the threshold to his presence. Winning the spiritual battle is done through faith. Trials are part of our faith. And we need to recognize that our trials in life didn't catch God by surprise. God is probably speaking to different people in this room in lots of different ways because we've talked a lot of, about a lot of different things. So this is what I'd suggest. Instead of trying to remember the four points and trying to remember this and remember that, maybe shift gears a minute and think about this. What is God saying to you from 1 Peter chapter 5 today? What is God saying to you? What should, uh, maybe this is the question I ask myself, what should I do with what I think God is calling me to do from 1 Peter chapter 5? And to think about that. At Lighthouse, we recognize that it's only God 
that can move in the heart of a person. And that's what we pray for. We pray that the Holy Spirit would get a hold of our hearts and change us, that He would align our minds with the truth of His Word, that we would lead that way. And so there'll be a final song today. There'll be prayer leaders at the corners of the room like normal. And this is your time to pray, recognizing that God always hears honest prayer. When we come to him in a, in a humility, recognizing that he is God, God hears us when we pray. And so this is going to be your time to pray. Anyone here can pray. You can slip out of your seat and go and pray with a prayer partner. They love to pray with folks on Sunday mornings. And we can pray about anything that's on our mind. But first, let me pray for you. God, we come before you recognizing the, the sin in our own hearts. We see that. We feel it. We sense it. And we rest in the forgiveness of Jesus. That that forgiveness isn't because of our um, goodness, but because of your goodness. And I pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, in just a remarkable way, you give us clarity to understand who you are. That we'd move from ourselves, that we would move to worshiping you as Lord of our life. And I pray for each person in this room, for those who don't know you yet, they're trying to figure this out, I pray that you'd give them your grace and help them see. And for those who are believers and thinking through uh, all of what's said in the book of Peter, I pray that uh, you give them your grace, help them to see you in clarity. And right now, I pray, Lord, that you would draw each person who needs to pray with someone else. For I pray through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.